and invite you to open up to our scripture passage for today. It's Exodus 39, and we're going to read the whole chapter, Exodus 39. From the blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, they made woven garments for ministering in the sanctuary. They also made sacred garments for Aaron, as the Lord commanded Moses. They made the ephod of gold, of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and of finely twisted linen. They hammered out thin sheets of gold and cut strands to be worked into the blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, the work of skilled hands. They made shoulder pieces for the ephod, which were attached to two of its corners so it could be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband was like it, of one piece with the ephod, and made with gold, and with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and with finely twisted linen, as the Lord commanded Moses. They mounted the onyx stones on gold filigree settings and engraved them like a seal with the name of the sons of Israel. They fastened them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the son of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses. They fashioned the breast piece, the work of skilled craftsmen. They made it like the ephod of gold and of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and of finely twisted linen. It was square a span long and a span wide, and folded double. Then they mounted four rows of precious stones on it. The first row was carnelian, chrysolite, and beryl. The second row was turquoise, lapis lazuli, and emerald. The third row was jacinth, agate, and amethyst. The fourth row was topaz, onyx, and jasper. They were mounted in gold filigree settings. There were 12 stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal, with the name of one of the twelve tribes. For the breastpiece, they made braid chains of pure gold, like a rope. They made two gold filigree settings and two gold rings, and fastened the rings to two of the corners of the breastpiece. They fashioned the two gold chains to the rings at the corners of the breastpiece, and the outer ends of the chains to the two settings, attaching them to the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front. They made two gold rings and attached them to the other two corners of the breastpiece on the inside edge next to the ephod. Then they made two more gold rings and attached them to the bottom of the shoulder pieces in the front of the ephod, close to the seam just above the waistband of the ephod. They tied the rings of the breastpiece to the rings of the ephod with blue cord, connecting it to the waistband so that the breastpiece would not swing out from the ephod as the Lord commanded Moses." They made the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth, the work of a weaver, with an opening in the center of the robe like an opening of a collar, and a band around this opening so that it would not tear. They made pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen around the hem of the robe, and they made bells of pure gold and attached them around the hem between the pomegranates. The bells and the pomegranates alternated around the hem of the robe to be worn for ministering. As the Lord commanded Moses, for Aaron and his sons, they made, fine tunic, they made tunics of fine linen, the work of a weaver, and the turban of fine linen, the linen caps and undergarments of finely twisted linen. The sash was made of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, the work of an embroiderer, as the Lord commanded Moses. They made the plate, the sacred emblem, out of, the pure, out of pure gold and engraved on it, like an, an inscription on a seal, holy to the Lord. Then they fastened the blue cord to it and attached it to the turban, as the Lord commanded Moses. 
So all the work on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was completed. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, frames, crossbars, posts, and bases. The covering of ramskins dyed red, and the covering of another durable leather, and the shielding curtain, the Ark of the Covenant with its poles and the atonement cover, the the table with all its articles and the bread of the presence, the pure gold lampstand with its rows of lamps and all its accessories, and olive oil for the light, the gold altar with anointing oil, the fragrant incense, and the curtain for the entrance to the tent, the bronze altar with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the basin with its strand, the curtains of the courtyard with its posts and base, and the curtain for the entrance to the courtyard, the ropes and the tent pegs for the courtyard, all the furnishings for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and the woven garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when serving as priests. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us here in these moments. Lord, as uh, we continue in through these passages that uh, are a bit confusing for us and are very foreign to us, we pray, Lord, that your spirit, though, would work through your living word uh, to create in us new hearts, to build us up upon your word, to do the work that only your spirit and word can do, ultimately to make us look more like Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, that your spirit would do that now as we study this passage and hear your word preached. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a uh, handful of years ago, I was training for a longer bike ride that I was going to do down in Utah County. And it came time for me to do a longer training ride. I think I was aiming to get 60 some miles in that day. And it was early May, so the weather could have been anything from warm sunshine to scattered snow showers. And that day, though, it was raining, which is actually worse for exercising outside than snow is. But I was determined to get this ride in, because if I didn't do it that Saturday, well, I'd have to wait a whole nother week before I could do it again. So I bundled up and headed out to Mountain View Corridor. I headed south, uh, and the rain wasn't too bad. I thought, okay, I I can handle this if it stays like this. And then I made it to down where Redwood crosses into Utah County, And by that point, the rain had picked up enough that it had washed every degree of warmth off my body. But I kept going. I crossed under I-15 and was headed across Draper. And at this point, I was experiencing a cold that I rarely had. It wasn't that cold in my fingers and toes, but it was a, a cold deep in the core of my body. And I didn't have my wallet, but I usually keep a couple bucks in a cycling bag behind my seat and for emergencies, and this was starting to feel like that. I needed to do something to warm up, and so I saw a Subway, which was open, which is not known for its coffee, but they still sell coffee. (laughs) And I went in there and took the couple of wrinkled dollars with shaking hands and got that coffee that tasted like it was brewed a few days ago, but it was the most satisfying cup of coffee I'd had in a long time. And I sat there and drank it, finally got the motivation to head back out, only discover the rain is now coming down even harder. And at this point, my arms weren't working normally, where they would kind of jolt back and forth at random intervals, 
which made steering the bike difficult. And at that point, I finally did something which is really hard for me to do. I pulled over, grabbed my phone out of a Ziploc bag, and called for Lisa. <laughs> Can you come pick me up? And never have I been more excited than to be picked up in a cute girl in a minivan and let her drive me home. I realized I couldn't make it home on my own. And that is actually a picture of every one of us in life. We need someone to take us home, to bring us in from the cold, pick us up from the ground, to rescue us, and to take us to a warm home where we can belong and be loved. And that is what this passage is actually about. Maybe you thought it was a sewing pattern for priestly garments. And that is there, but all of that serves a greater point that we need someone who can bring us to our God, to bring us home to our God, because we can't do it ourselves. And that's what I want you to remember this morning. We need someone to bring us home. And we're going to look at this with three points. First, the high priest, and then the first priest, and then third, the better priest. So first, the high priest. Verse 1 tells us that most of these instructions are for making the garments that will be used by the priests for ministering inside the tabernacle. And remember that God's temporary home on earth is going to be this tabernacle that the Israelites are building. But only Aaron and the high priests after him can go into that holiest of spaces where God's presence will be manifest. And because even though God will be dwelling with his people, there has to be this separation between God and the people. And I think this idea of being separated from God, it can be a little bit foreign to us in our modern day of age, where we want to think, oh, of course God is with me. God loves me. I can go pray to God whenever I want. Actually, I think more likely, it's not that we've gotten used to the idea of God's presence. It's that God's presence in our life, we have a very fickle understanding of how that works. Because so many of you, you base your sense of whether God is with you or not based on your feelings for the moment. So if you're feeling good or if things are going well in your life, you feel like, oh yeah, God is really with me now. But then if you screw up or are feeling depressed or things are going poorly in your life, you think God must be far away from me now. And we base our idea of God's presence in our life based off our feelings. But the Bible shows us a different picture, that actually every single one of us is born apart from God. And in fact, we don't even want God in our life, in our natural state. At least we don't want a God who is in charge of everything. We're happy to kind of make toned down versions of that God who is maybe not as big or not as holy, but none of us naturally want a God who is holy in our life because he's actually scary for us. He sees into the dark things that we're trying to hide from everybody else. And that is this God. And that is why there needs to be a separation between God and his people because he is holy and he can't be in the presence of their sin. But what also scripture shows is that God wants to be with his people because he loves them. God loves sinners. And because it wasn't your good works that got God into your life, it won't be your failures that put him out of your life. That is what grace is, that God comes into our life when we deserve it the least. And so God's presence in your life does not depend on how you're feeling one day or the other, 
but depends on a God who promises to be with his people even when they don't deserve it. And one of the reasons God gave his people priests, a special person who could kind of bridge that gap between God and the people, at least symbolically, was because God wanted to show, I want to be with you. And now as I read through this passage, you probably struggle to keep up with all the details and all the, the repeated words and all these things. One way to, that is helpful to think of what is going on in our passage is it's describing a uniform. A uniform, maybe you have to wear one with your job, is designed for its purpose, right? So when I was in the military, we would often wear our camouflage utilities, which were designed in line with how we would use them. So for instance, over every button on the uniform, there was extra pieces of fabric to cover over the buttons. And this was for a couple purposes. One, so that a button wouldn't snag on, say, a, a piece of shrub as you're walking through the woods on a patrol and you don't want to alert other people that you're out there. So they cover over the buttons. It also is so that it won't, the buttons won't reflect any light and kind of set off your position to an enemy that's looking out for you. Uniforms reflect their purpose. And in addition, in the same way, the uniform of the priest here reflects the purpose of his job. That is why one of the most repeated phrases in our passage is, as the Lord commanded Moses. It, these priestly garments aren't what came out of, say, like a study committee that tested a number of options for what the priests could wear when ministering before God and figure out what are the most effective things. No, these are fabric patterns from heaven. They are sewn with God's understanding of what the priest is to do. And here's his uniform that will aid in his work. So I want to look at some of the details of these garments to better understand their purpose. It's also a bit understanding for any of us to figure out how everything fits together in the priest's garments. You could Google the priestly garments and you would get six slightly different diagrams because of ambiguities in the text and, and elsewhere. So we don't know exactly what this looked like, but we can get at least a basic idea. And first, there's kind of a base layer and a turban that are all made of fine linen, so probably a, a white or off-white color. And this is the basic uniform of the priests, as it says in verse 27. This is for Aaron and his sons. And then to hold that kind of linen sheet together, there is a sash made out of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn for the waistband. And each priest would then mount on top of their turban a golden cap that had the words on it, holy to the Lord. Now, that was the base level uniform. But when Aaron is ministering in the tabernacle as the high priest, he then needs to put on a number of other items. Maybe it would be something like if you've ever worked in a clean room making sensitive electronics or medical devices, and you have to put on, you know, take off your old clothes and put on special clothes to go into that clean area. That is what the high priest had to do. And so first there is the robe for the ephod, which is described in verses 22 to 26. And it is made of entirely blue cloth. And at the bottom of that long robe, there are woven pomegranates alternating with golden bells along the hem. And then over that robe would be the ephod, which is a separate garment, maybe something like a long apron that you would put over the blue robe. And that ephod is made with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. And this is the same fabric that was used to weave 
all of the tabernacle curtains, if you remember that from last week. And then on top of the ephod are two shoulder pieces that have some sort of fasteners on them so that you can kind of unsnap the front part of the, uh, the apron from the back part to make it easier to take this thing on or off. But the shoulder pieces are more than just practical. They have mounted on them two onyx stones that have etched on them the names of the sons of Israel. And then on top of the ephod is this breast piece, which is made of the same type of fabric as the ephod, and it was, though, a perfect square on the priest's chest. And on that square are mounted these 12 jewels. So you've got four rows of three stones each on top of this perfect square breast piece. And then the breast piece is held on by golden chains and rings that seem to kind of wrap around at least the side of it that connect to the back so that you can imagine it, the breast piece doesn't go swinging about. It'd be fairly heavy every time the priest leans over or moves quickly. It kind of fastens it to his body. So that's kind of a basic overview of these garments. Well, what is the function of them? Well, the first thing I want you to notice is many of the materials used in fashioning Aaron's uniform are the same materials used for making the tabernacle. So the blue, purple, and scarlet weave is the same fabric used for the tabernacle curtains. The gold matches much of the gold used for other furnishings inside the holy spaces. Just from the materials alone, you can get a sense that this uniform belongs in the tabernacle. Actually, one thing that's interesting, if you kind of picture the priest wearing his uniform, you actually are seeing like a mini diorama of the tabernacle itself. Right? So uh, Greg Beal, one scholar who's written on this, says there's three main parts of the priest's garment. First, there is the robe, which would be blue like the sea. And then there are pomegranates around the hem of it, which is something that grows on the earth. And remember how we said the tabernacle is actually like a diorama of the, the universe from an Israelite perspective, that the courtyard represented the earthly realm, and that's where people could mingle about. And in a similar way, it seems like this blue robe represents the earthly realm. There is the sea and earth on it in the pomegranates. And then there is the ephod, which is made of the same curtain material that was made for the curtains in the tabernacle, the holy space, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and it's set over the robe, and if you were to picture it, it would have something probably of a rectangular shape. Think of like a long apron that he's wearing. And in the holy space, we said that represented what? The heavens. There were seven lights from the light stand, kind of illuminating that dark, inky, purple curtain, so it looked like you're peering up into the heavens. And the priest, while he doesn't have lights on him, he does have these golden strands woven into the fabric, which would set off some reflection as the candlelight lights on his garments in that holy space, making it perhaps look like he's representing the stars up in the heavens. And then there's the breast piece, which is square. And what room is square in the tabernacle? Well, it's the holy of holies, where God's ark will be, where God's presence is manifested. And there on the breast piece, gold is featured prominently, like it is in the Holy of Holies. So the priest is actually something of like a walking tabernacle, which gives us even a whole new understanding of what we looked at last week when we said that Jesus became the living tabernacle. That's even foreshadowed here 
in the priest's garments. And so this takes us then to our first point, or sorry, our second point, which is the first priest. Part of a priest's role is to represent the people in places they couldn't go, right? Because they, they couldn't go into the clean room. They didn't have the uniform for it. And this idea of a priest is very common throughout Scripture. And I want us to look at Ezekiel 28. So this is a prophecy against the king of Tyre. But as you read through the prophecy, it, it takes an unexpected turn in describing it. So Ezekiel 28, verse 12. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. What is this described? It doesn't seem like it's describing the king of Tyre. It seems to be describing probably Adam, the first human who lived in the garden with Eve. And then listen to what comes next. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald, topaz, onyx, and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, and beryl, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. A light bulb probably should have gone off in your head. It's describing Adam wearing similar clothing to what the priest was wearing. A robe adorned with these precious stones like the priest would wear. Now, only nine stones are described here, but it seems like the author is representing Adam as a priest, the first priest. And remember how we said in certain ways that the tabernacle they build was kind of like building a new Garden of Eden in the desert. And so here we have a new Adam serving as high priest in this new Eden. Now, if Adam, though, was a priest, the first priest, who was Adam representing in the Garden of Eden? Who was he a priest for? Who was he kind of bringing close to God? Well, the answer might surprise you. It was actually us. We were the ones he was representing. Listen to Romans chapter 5. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin has entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. Paul here is describing Adam in a role that actually is like a priest, but he's kind of like an anti-priest. Because instead of bringing the people close to God, he is taking them further away, but he's like a priest in that his actions have implications for the people that he is representing. So that if he was a good priest, he actually would have brought us closer to God, but if he's a bad priest, it would mean that it would have implications for us. And that is why, going back to what I said earlier, every one of us is naturally alienated from God. Because the priest who first represented us failed in that way. It's like his mistake created this genetic defect in everyone that he represented that got passed down throughout humanity so that we are all bent, born with a bent to run away from God. Ezekiel continues, I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. Adam's job here was to guard Eden. In fact, the, the words that God gave to Eden back in Genesis, to watch and to keep the garden, those two words are the two words that are also used to describe the priest's work of watching and keeping the tabernacle or the temple. See all these connections. And what, though, is Adam guarding against in Eden? 
well, snakes. Right? And instead of killing, or sorry, instead of talking with the snake, Adam should have taken his garden shovel and chopped the snake's head off. Right? That's what a good priest would do to guard the garden. But he fails to be a good guard. And so he loses his job, gets kicked out, and God hires new security guards to guard his garden, two cherubim with flaming swords. And that action had implications for the rest of humanity. That Adam, instead of bringing humanity home to live with God, ends up leaving humanity out in the desert further away from home and distrustful of God. And for that one sin of Adam is why there is so much pain and hurt and violence and war in our world. Because of, instead of guarding humanity against the evil that was trying to destroy it, instead of bringing an end to that evil, chopping the head off the snake and, and, and ending the story there, evil gets the best of Adam, and so it gains a foothold over the rest of humanity. And it explains everything that has happened since then. It's why, no matter how much progress we may make in our world, with same-day shipping or 5G speeds, electric vehicles, the metaverse. We have made very little progress in the things that matter most. Hate, violence, a deep sense that we're far from home. It's why we need a better priest. And that takes us then to our third point. Because Adam failed as a priest, there was a need for a new high priest. And this originally went in was... Aaron, but that system wasn't good enough. I mean, think about it this way. When Aaron went into the holiest space, he did it as a representative of the people. He was, in one sense, bringing them home to God. But how did Aaron represent the people in that holy space? Well, their names, their family names, were written on the breastpiece on his chest. But that's something, but they're there in name only. Is that really home if you just have your name in your home and not your body, your soul? And yet, what we see, even in the priestly garments, is that it anticipates something better. Because where are the names of Israel on the priest? They're on his breastpiece, right? And what did we say earlier? The breastpiece represented the Holy of Holies. That it seems that it was God's plan from back then that, there, and that, that just as their names were permanently on the breastpiece, one day God's people would be permanently living in that holy of holy space. That they would be home with their God. And that is why God sent a better high priest, Jesus. Hebrews 9 verse 11 tells us, So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered into that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made with human hands and is not part of this created world, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Do you see what it's describing Jesus' work as? What the cross was? That Jesus entered into not the diorama of the holy place, the real holy place, and he, through his work, actually brought you in some way home into God's presence. 
I mean, do not miss the glory of what Christ has done. Remember how Adam's work as kind of the first priest, as our representative, had implications for us, either for good or for bad. So also Jesus' actions have implications for us, either good or for bad. And going to Romans, back to Romans 5, verse 15. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. You see, the, the high priest in our passage, he would have to do these actions over and over again. Every day he had to make sacrifices. He had to continually go into that holy place year after year to offer a, the blood of atonement. And he would bring the people into that holy place, but do it only in name. Their names are written there, but they weren't there. But Jesus is a better priest because he does something much, much better. That his actions as a priest actually bring a tangible change into your life. Like Adam's did, but this time for the better. Jesus actually brings you into God's holy place, Jesus carries you home. And not because of your actions, but because Jesus is your representative doing what you were helpless to do. And that is what it means to have faith, that when you become a Christian, God unites you to Christ so that everything that was Christ becomes yours. And that is happening Right now, for those of you who believe, your heart is home, and the rest of your body will follow. To become a Christian isn't about trying to just be a better person. It's first acknowledging that I'm more helpless than I realize, and I need someone to take me home. When you finally realize, you know, on that bike ride of life, that this is way harder than I thought, and I can't make it home, and I'm miserable, and I've got grime all over me, and I'm shivering, and you pick up the phone, and you call for help. That's when you're a Christian, because you know you can't do it on your own. And the most amazing thing happens when you have that faith in Jesus to look to him to bring you home. You become united to Christ. This portal between heaven and earth opens where Christ from heaven comes into your life in, in reality. And so that Christ's actions then become your actions. That his life of perfection becomes your life of perfection so that when Jesus looks, or when God looks at you, he sees the beauty of Jesus plastered all over you. Not because of you, but because Christ has been united to you and he has taken over your life. And his death on the cross, well, you were there with him in his death so that he, when, when he died, your sinful self died. So that God can rightfully say, I remember your sins no more because they have been buried on Calvary 2,000 years ago. And this is what Paul explains in Romans chapter 6. Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ in baptism, you joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, 
now we also may live new lives. And that means that if you're a Christian, at this very moment, you are united to Christ. And part of you is actually living in that holiest of space. Heaven has broken into your heart right now. And it is changing things. It is rearranging the furniture. So are you living that way? Are you living in a way that shows the certainty of no matter what happens out here in this world, no matter what happens at work, my life is hidden with Christ in God. What can Monday do to me? No matter how dark and depressing it gets in our world, and what things you see on the news, and the horrors that occur in our, on our globe, that you know I have the light of heaven lighting up my soul, and that cannot be canceled? Or is your life so wrapped up in the ways of the world that your inner peace is as volatile as the stock market? Friends, you need to know that in, when you are united to Christ, the high priest, you will make it home. Because nothing can tear Christ apart, and he has said in his word, he will not let you go. And that means there is only one direction for your life, headed home, to where you, in body and in soul, will be living in that holiest of spaces. And you, every sense of your life will tingle with the joy of finally experiencing who you were made to be, an instrument that shines forth the glory of an unapproachable God. It's why the features of the tabernacle in our passage show up in one other place, at the end of the Bible in heaven. Revelation 21, the walls of the city were built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 precious stones. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the, first, the fourth emerald. And on it goes, and then it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. And in that place, friends, you and I will finally be home. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would remind us of these glorious truths. That Jesus has brought us home and he is bringing us home. That he has started that work of building heaven in our hearts and one day our bodies will match that reality. That one day we will be not just in heaven in name only, but we will be surrounded, we will be there in body and in soul. And Jesus has guaranteed that. He will not let us go. And so we pray, Father, that whatever happens in our life, whatever happens tomorrow, in this week, that we would realize we are set on a much more sure foundation than anything in this world. And that would allow us to live differently. And pray that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen.